KRCL 90.9 FM HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org. Welcome to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Radioactive is KRCL's show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives, basically. Y'all are welcome here on Listener's Community Radio of Utah. Tonight on the show, I'm going to check in once more with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law. He's back stateside after spring break with his family in Israel. He's always got a good perspective on the global situation, especially as... The Russian war in Ukraine grinds on in its third week. We're also going to talk about a couple of new laws just passed by Utah lawmakers affecting the future of the Great Salt Lake. Joining me will be Salt Lake Tribune reporter Sage Miller, whose reporting today explains how a change in Utah water law will help our namesake lake. Under HB 33, she reported today, water right holders can finally lease their water to fill the shrinking lake and other natural lands, and it will be accepted as a beneficial use. Joining the conversation will be Rob Dubuque, past president of Friends of Great Salt Lake and now general counsel for the nonprofit. His specialty is water quality, quantity, and encroachment on the Great Salt Lake. We're going to start our conversation, though, with Safe Parleys, a new grassroots group that opposes the application now before the Utah Division of Oil, Gas, and Mining for a 634-acre open-pit limestone quarry and sand and gravel pit in Parleys. And Scott Williams is a Save Parleys volunteer, recently retired executive director of the Healthy Environment Alliance of Utah, otherwise known as Heal Utah. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having us on. You look good in retirement for, what, a couple of months at least? Yeah, it feels good. (laughs) So what got you basically uh, out of retirement and volunteering yourself again for yet another environmental cause? Well, I have to be honest. It started as a not-in-my-backyard kind of NIMBY thing Mm -hmm. because I have a little 100-year-old cabin up in Mount Air Canyon, which is just off Parley's. Mm -hmm. And um, I just got it a couple years ago. Can only use it in the summer. And then, uh, but lo and behold, I find out that someone's going to build a one-square-mile gravel pit right at the mouth of my canyon. And so a group of us who are have can have cabins up there and then people from the Canyon Rim community and people downwind of Parley's all start saying this doesn't sound like a good idea, kind of banded together and formed this grassroots Save Parley's group. So I read an interesting op-ed by uh, Dr. Brian Mensch of Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment who talked about what if someone suddenly turned up and wanted to mine underneath the Salt Lake Temple. It would be immediately met with outrage. And then he goes on to say, our mountains, our canyons are no less sacred. Uh, And I'll put a link in the show notes, folks, so you can check out that commentary. But uh, why is this not right, and not right now, maybe not ever, this tree farm LLC mine development, Scott? Well, there's, let me count the ways. Um, So... Um, For one thing, limestone and gravel is ubiquitous in Utah. You can get it almost anywhere. There's one mine in the canyon, isn't there? There's a small gravel pit that's about operating on about 12 acres right now. This is going to be 635 acres, so 60 times bigger than that one that you see when you're driving down Parley's. There's also gravel pits on Beck Street coming into the valley, at Point of the Mountain coming into the valley, at Big Cottonwood coming into the valley. So we're sort of, you know, gravel 
pit gateway in some ways. Um, most people think that the mountains of the Wasatch are protected, but there are private lands in the Wasatch where people can apply for permits to do things that no one would imagine. So this would create, if you were hiking up Grandeur Peak from Mill Creek, and you got to the top of that ridge, you would be looking down basically onto the Kennecott Copper Mine. Pretty huge pro- proposal that seemed to catch a lot of folks off guard, even the folks who regulate such things, I'm, I understand. Well, there was what I would call some sort of um, unusual um, approaches to this. They applied for both a small mine and a large mine simultaneously. And the Division of Oil, Gas, and Mining said, this has never happened. We don't know what to do with this. They rejected the small mine and um, said, we'll review the large mine. That's clearly what you're intending to do. Tree Farm appealed that to the board and said they don't have the authority to do that. There was going to be a hearing next Wednesday. Tree Farm just yesterday withdrew their applications and said, never mind. We're only going to apply for a small mine. Wink, wink. And um, so now the division is going to probably have to go ahead and process that. And with small mine operations in the state, you, the division has to respond in 15 days to that application, and there's no public comment period. No public comment period, and a public comment period that was going to happen just got canceled because of they pulled back the large this, mine. This change. All right. So, uh, you and other residents and environmentalists have banded together under this label of Save Parleys. What is it you're asking folks to do? Well, what we're asking them to do, number one, is to go onto the saveparleys.org website and sign up to get notices because the action on this shifts from the Division of Oil, Gas, and Mining to the Division of Water Rights to the county zoning uh, commissions to um, different entities where they have to – the Division of Air Quality because, as you know, gravel pits create all this dust that's very poorly regulated in this state – And so we will be sending out action alerts of where the next action is. We believe the next step is going to be that next Tuesday, we think, we're waiting for the agenda to come out tomorrow, but we think the county commission will be, or the county council will be looking at a new zoning ordinance that would prohibit mining in the, what's called the forest and uh, canyons overlay zone, which is most of the Wasatch Mountains. But would that grandfather this proposal in? Well, that's the question. They believe they have vested mining rights. Many people who don't have a interest in making money off this have looked at it and say, we don't think they do have vested mining rights. So it may very well end up in court. And I'm guessing Safe Parleys is preparing itself for that? We are working with Save Our Canyons. We're, uh, the other thing on our website is there's a donate button. We're pr- trying to raise money to um, help Save Canyons retain legal counsel. They've already retained legal counsel who's working on this. And um, Mill Creek City has been opposing it. Salt Lake City has been opposing it. The most important thing that happened last week, Laura, is the Central Wasatch Commission, which is the mayors of Alta, Brighton, Cottonwood Heights, Mill Creek, Salt Lake City, Park City, Summit County, unanimously voted to um, oppose this project. Are you somewhat relieved that the legislative session is over and no special bill came through at the last minute? As I'm we've seen local <laughs> control being taken away in certain cases for large developments. This is a mine, a completely different from a, a housing one up in Summit County where this has happened. We, we were relieved, but we're not sort of 
resting on that because a special session or anything could happen. And um, two years ago, the legislature passed a critical materials infrastructure bill that protected gravel pits. Um, we don't think it protects this gravel pit from going forward, but a small changes in language could affect that. So once again, what's the website for Save Parley so folks can check it out, get involved if they so choose? Saveparleys.org. All right. We'd love to have you back. Based on what happens next week, please keep us in, informed about what's going on. That's the way Radioactive works is with folks stepping up to the mic. So thank you for still doing that, Scott. Oh, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Scott Williams, Save Parley's volunteer and former executive director of the Healthy Environment Alliance of Utah. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Salt Lake Tribune reporter Sage Miller about her new story on HB 33, a bill that passed on in-stream flow. And I've got a clip here she helped me track down from the last legislative session. And Sage, why don't you help me set it up? We're going to hear a few minutes, about five minutes from Representative, is it Joel? Joel Ferry. Yeah. And he's explaining HB 33. Yeah. He's talking about the impact of what this, what HB 33 does and what it means, not just for the Great Salt Lake, but for farmers and individuals who hold water, water rights and what it means to also give the opportunity to conserve water instead of waste it. Here we go. Years ago, we as a legislature, we passed a statute that created in-stream flow. And that was to help protect some critical habitat areas for mainly fisheries, so some of our, our Bonneville trout and, and upper, upper river systems. Um, it was used very sparingly. There's only about a half a dozen times that this statute had been used in those dozen years. So very, very infrequently. Um, and looking at this, working with interested parties and groups and impacted parties, we recognize that there is a need um, and an opportunity to expand the way we use this. Um, in its essence, what this bill does is for a water right holder in particular, you know, you think about in the state of Utah, the majority of our water is held by our farmers and ranchers. 75 plus percent of our water in the state is used by agriculture. So what this bill does is it provides additional tools and additional opportunity for our water to be used throughout the state of Utah. Um, this bill incentivizes and encourages conservation, and it does it through meaningful incentives, free market incentives. So what we've done here and what this bill will do will allow and enable someone who has a water right and, and you know, potentially they, they're not receiving a high economic value. They might be growing a low-value crop or using it on something that doesn't really generate a lot of income. And there's going to be an interested party downstream or somewhere in that system that says, you know what, for us it's, it's important that we have water going into our rivers, going down into Great Salt Lake, for example, that we can shepherd this water and deliver this water downstream, utilizing it in a way that will provide a beneficial use but also provide an incentive, an economic incentive, a financial incentive to the water right owner. And so we accomplish, there's a demand that exists and there's a supply that exists. And this bridges that gap and provides that opportunity. The nuts and bolts of the bill um, have worked very hard to make sure that we're protecting the, the existing water right structure. So a, an individual who would like to do an in-stream flow has to go through a full change application process. So a water right that goes through an in-stream flow will be advertised, it'll have opportunity for anyone who's impacted to protest it, and really it will protect, the state engineer is required to make sure that there's no impairment to any downstream user. So it protects those downstream. 
the beneficial side, it's going to enhance our, our natural aquatic environment. So it's, it's being, this bill is being in, expanded to allow um, use on sovereign lands, to be, allow use for the natural environment. Um, so the beneficial side is that we will be able to start to offset and reverse um, the, 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 you know, the, um, the impacts we've seen from the drought on Great Salt Lake. So this bill will have a direct impact and a positive impact in improving Great Salt Lake. Um, so the process is, again, a willing buyer, willing seller. You would then have to have sign off from one of three state agencies, the state parks, um, the Division of Nat uh, DNR, so natural resources, or sovereign lands. You identify where this water is going to go, and then through a what's considered a non-consumptive use, so when we put water on farm ground, that's a consumptive use, that water's being consumed. So leaving it in the stream, that's a non-consumptive use. So that means there's, there's, there might be a little bit of, of you know, conveyance loss, a little bit of evaporative loss, but minimal. But it, what it does is it, it protects that water right. So right now, in our water right system, if I own a water right, I have to use it or I lose it. So as a farmer, my option is I grow crops or I sell. This provides a really important third option. So by not having additional consumption, I can keep that water in the natural environment, in the stream, sending it down to a sovereign land like Great Salt Lake or Utah Lake, protects my water right, benefits the environment, and, and increases um, the, the likelihood that that water will stay on, on the landscape. Um, the, I think an important component of this is these are short-term. So it's a, a temporary change application, which is up to one year, or it can be a fixed time change application up to 10 years. So after those 10 years, or whenever the, the, the term of the contract expires, that water automatically reverts back to the original land, to the place of use, before the change application was filed. So automatically it reverts back. So this, again, I think this promotes um, agriculture on our landscape. It's not buy and dry. Because at, at its core, we as farmers and ranchers, we're, we're businessmen. And we want to make, uh, our water rights are an asset. We want to make smart decisions with our water. And so this allows me to have a more diversified portfolio to where I can utilize my water to its highest and best use as I decide. Um, I think ultimately this allows more producers to stay on the landscape and it will help agriculture production in the long run. Got to make smart decisions with our water. Representative Joel Ferry from uh, Floor Time at the last legislative session, which I was just kind of mocking. But we have Sage Miller with us now from the Salt Lake Tribune and her reporting today how a change in Utah water law will help Great Salt Lake. And that was a good primer on understanding House Bill 33, wherein water right holders can finally lease their water to fill the shrinking lake and other natural lands. What turns you on to this story, which, by the way, published through the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative, and it's a partnership of news, education, and media organizations, including KRCL, that aims to inform you all about the Great Salt Lake. Sage. Yeah, so what turned me on to this story specifically is that I'm just like not a science gal, don't really understand it very well. However, I f do understand the lack of implementation of science into law. Yeah. And so this is something that I was like, this is my wheelhouse. I can kind of break down complex complex ideas, complex laws, and water law, as Rob would know better than I, is like one of the most archaic and complex forms and systems of law within the state of Utah. And so this was an incredibly important bill to actually 
funnel not just water to Great Salt Lake, but to a bunch of other natural lands by just tweaking some language. And it's it, it could make a huge impact, like considering or hoping that more water does start to pour down and we can start to utilize it in different ways. And joining us via Zoom, if we've dialed all the tech in right, we've got Rob Dubuque. Hi, Rob. How you doing? Doing fine, Laura. We got you on this end. And Rob is a a past president of Friends of Great Salt Lake. And will you describe that organization for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, Rob? Well, um, the mission of Friends is to uh, preserve and protect the Great Salt Lake ecosystem and to increase public awareness and appreciation of the lake through advocacy, education, research, and the arts. So... um, Multifaceted organization, uh, take a lot of different approaches to advocating for the lake, um, and I think we're pretty effective at that. And uh, after doing your service with Friends of Great Salt Lake as a past president, but also board member, you are now general counsel. You're, you're far away from the, the Great Salt Lake, but it's still on your mind. Well, I'm far away. This uh, more had more to do with the pandemic than anything. We just happened to uh, land here as things were unwinding, and so uh, we sort of hunkered down. But my heart is still in Utah. So, when it comes to this this change in the law with HB 33, and there's another one, 419, that I know you might want to talk about. Um, is this good for the future of the Great Salt Lake, or is it some code updating that? Only folks with your law degree understand. No, it's, it, it is a big deal. Um, you know, it's one of the frustrations that we've had over the years. We've recognized for years that we're going to have to get additional water to the lake. And the question is, is how to do that? Um, a few years ago, we actually uh, received some funds to, um, to bring water to the lake. Not a huge amount, but some. And uh, one of the guarantees that this, um, this individual who uh, offered to lease us those water rights needed to have is a guarantee that this water was going to be used beneficially. Because if you don't use your water beneficially, you can lose it after a period of time. And we were unable to do that. So, you know, the fact that uh, we now have that tool is, is a huge deal for the lake. So, Sage, in following this story, what did what did you find? People relieved, people concerned. I know Representative Phil Lyman, uh, which we didn't have in that clip, but he was talking with during that floor time with Representative Ferry, like, you know, is this going to disincentivize farmers or production in essence? And that is a concern, I guess. Yeah, I guess Phil Lyman uh, posed that question. And then very soon afterwards, it's like, you know what, Joel Ferry, I support this bill. I just (laughs) needed to ask the question, you know. And what what Ferry essentially said to the answer to that question is he doesn't believe that it's going to disincentivize any any farmers uh, from continuing like agriculture. He actually believes it's going to incentivize them because as water resources become significantly more scarce, some farmers like it may not be make economic sense for them to continue doing certain kinds of farming for alfalfa. So instead of losing that water right, what they could do was say like, hey, Great Salt Lake, or in this instance, the person who would be managing or the entity that would be managing the water right for Great Salt Lake would be the Utah Division of Fire, Forestry and State Lands could say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sell this water, this water to you for, you know, X amount an acre in order to funnel it down to the Great Salt Lake. And that way, it essentially creates a market incentive for farmers to not 
get rid of their water or waste their water uh, at risk of losing it to the state or forfeiting it because it's not a beneficial use. So can they get it back? Could they just sublease it, so to speak, to yes. the Great Salt Lake? So they get it back. It's it, there's, there's, like, there's a lease agreement. So you can do it for a minimum of one year leasing that water right or if to, up to 10 years. And after the 10 years, it automatically goes back to the individual who owned it before. So it would be the farmer. Yeah. So, Rob Dubuque, uh, you were talking with me earlier when we were prepping for this conversation about HB 419, which is similar for water conservation easements, the way farmers have option to do conservation easements for farming land. Can you kind of talk a bit about that and how HB 33 and HB 419 then work together to benefit the Great Salt Lake? Yeah, it's, it's HB 410. 410. And, um, right. So what 410 did is create a, a, a water trust. For Great Salt Lake, um, you know, people are generally familiar with land trusts, uh, things along that along that line, where somebody uh, puts a conservation easement or something like that, and uh, they get compensated for that in exchange for keeping their land uh, in a certain state. Water obviously is a little more complicated since it moves, and uh, but uh, an individual with a water right um, under HB 33 could donate, could lease, could permanently sell uh, their water right. A number of entities could hold it, private individuals could hold it, Uh, someone like friends could hold it, whoever's going to manage this water trust could hold it. Um, But it provides a tool that we haven't had, and and that is a big deal. Now, 410 provides a sizable amount of money, $40 million uh, through uh, with opera funds, um, they're going to have to uh, basically, it's, it's designed so that two or more conservation organizations uh, will manage this trust. Uh, it's not defined exactly what, the, uh, what this trust will look like, mm-hmm. but because there are for funds, they're going to have to be spent in uh, approximately three years. So um, we're going to have to get on it pretty quickly here. American Recovery Plan Act funds. That was a lot of money floating up there around the legislature this last session, Sage. Yeah, it was a, it was a good amount of money that they have dedicated to the lake. $40 million is right. But I think that there's like a flip side, a caveat that we kind of need to talk about when we're talking about being able to lease water and bring it to the lake. It's very much so dependent on farmers or anybody who obtains a water right have to be willing to let go of that water, right? Well, and you know, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, right? <laughs> exactly. So in that note, uh, if especially in like a bad drought year, which is... Uh, Always? Yeah. <laughs> we're in a mega drought. Like, I don't know, are we ever going to leave it at this point? Um, And especially in a bad drought year, it could be really hard for water right holders to want to let go of that resource. Joel Ferry kind of talks about how water rights specifically for farmers is an asset, right? And that's kind of what keeps their business afloat. And so if they don't have the necessary water, don't have like that access water, excess water, then then it, it may be tricky for them to like want to let go of that asset, let go of that money. And so it really kind of is just dependent on people being willing to let go of their water rights to give it to Great Salt Lake. So, Rob, in terms of this change, for, uh, really putting benefit into the beneficial use for, for the Great Salt Lake, this sounds like a seismic shift in water law. I mean, uh, our water law has been pretty stagnant. Can I use the pun for quite a while? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can use that. Uh, you know, look, this is an ancient law, really. Uh, you know, it doesn't reflect in a lot of ways modern thinking in terms of protecting resources like Great Salt Lake. So, you know, I mean, 
it's it is a fundamental shift, and um, this that that whole the term beneficial use sounds pretty easy to uh, to grasp, but it's very nuanced when it comes to water law. And the fact that uh, if a division, one of the named divisions, accepts this water uh, it, to be used on a sovereign land in this case, which is Great Salt Lake, then it would automatically be deemed to be used beneficially. Now, you still have to go through a change application process, um, but really when you come down to it, the uh, entity that wants to lease it, they would bear the burden on that. And But still, we, we now have a tool that we haven't had, and that's that's a big deal. And I believe that Kennecott Copper did something like this a year ago with some of its water rights. Uh, at our most recent meeting of the uh, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative Solutions Journalism Initiative, that was bandied about, that this... This does have precedent in people trying to do it. This makes it much easier, Sage. Yeah, this makes it significantly easier to do it. And not only does it give sovereign lands like Great Salt Lake the opportunity to hold water rights, it gives farmers or water rights holders the opportunity to conserve water instead of wasting it. Because right now with beneficial use law, the benefit is using it. So if you don't use it, it's not considered beneficial. Just going to the Great Salt Lake is yeah. not considered yeah. prior to this bill. It was legal. Like they couldn't do it, right? It was not considered a beneficial use of water. Water. And so now it is like now preserving the Great Salt Lake or funneling water to it is considered a beneficial use. I just want to stop right there and appreciate that moment, Rob and Sage, because as a layperson, I'm like, of course, it's a beneficial use just to allow that water to flow and fill the Great Salt Lake. But that is not what has been law for decades or more than a century. It's been more than a century. It's an old mining law. I mean, when we started settling the West, that's where you uh, came up with it, as opposed to uh, the water law back east, riparian water law. So, um, yeah, it's it's a big deal. So in this Great Salt Lake collaborative that a, a ton of news outlets are working on, folks, you're going to start hearing more stories about these arcane bits and pieces that affect the Great Salt Lake, including another tidbit that I, I gleaned at our meeting. Sage, I don't remember if you remember this, was that... Was it Brigham Young got the water rights before they came out here? Yeah. Something like that. Have you been able to tra track that down? Uh, Emily Lewis, who's a water lawyer and an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, is actually the one that pointed that out to me because she was like, man, Utah has cared about water before it was even a state sage, <laughs> right? And I've been always, I've wanted to dig more into it because I think that it's an interesting like link to state history is that this aspect of water, the fact that we're the second driest state in the nation, right? But the one thing that we needed before we came here was water um, and protecting that kind of water resource. So it's, it's been been interesting to kind of see how it's played out and how especially lawmakers and Joel Ferry says this too is that this is going to be one of the most important pieces of water legislation that that class of Congress will see that their time at the Capitol because it is such a monumental shift to recognize sovereign lands as being able to hold water as a beneficial use but also kind of opening up the door to who is allowed to hold water rights to begin with because at the very beginning the lake wasn't at the table you and I most likely want to be at the table right it would be farmers landowners miners uh, miners industry workers developers but but not necessarily humans or uh or land yeah uh, concerned about the level of the great salt lake okay rob dubuque you are um you specialize in water quantity quality and the future of the great salt lake it's the encroachment <laughs> on the great salt lake so um 
this bill, I don't know if it's been signed. I don't know when it goes into effect. Do you know, Sage? It's on the governor's desk right now. Mm -hmm. I will say that today there was a, like a press conference with Governor Cox where he says the only the only bill he was going to veto was I think it's HB 11, um, like the, the, the trans bill, uh, the anti-trans bill that would ban transgender girls from being able to participate in sports that he said that's the only one that he is going to veto so i think i'm Ooh, i'm, I'm pretty fingers. confident that we have the green light from the governor on hb 33 so rob do you see a bunch of change orders going in to the respective parties well i think this will take some time to uh you know to play out uh, the hb 410 is going to take some time to there, there's an application process an entity is going to have to be selected it's going to take some time but so you know it'd be nice to think that there are people waiting uh, at the door to uh, to turn in applications but yeah. uh, we'll see we'll have to see if people step up to this beneficial use um that you can get it back i think is probably the a point in in favor of it going through yeah uh is the fact that you can get that water back you're leasing it but now you have the option to let go of it if you want yeah. um like wholeheartedly right like you can sell it um but emily lewis points out that there's not a lot of new water rights so all of these water what the in-stream flow water rights are already appropriated so people are just kind of shifting where the water goes around in fact we have a clip from your interviews with emily lewis you know, the time when you really need an in-stream flow is when there's not a lot of water. Under the prior bill, you know, the actual practical application of making a difference in the stream was pretty limited. There are going to be significant environmental issues coming down the pipe here in Utah. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a need for water for environmental purposes. And this bill provides the legal avenue to do so. And so you know, what that does is it, on the face, you know, allows us an opportunity to get water to areas that need it. One law alone is not going to save the Great Salt Lake, but it is a very important step in the right direction because it provides a legal avenue to bring water to the lake. And that is Emily Lewis, a Utah water lawyer and adjunct professor at the University of Utah's Law School, also host of the water podcast called Ripple Effect that we've been able to share on the show and hopefully will do so in the future. So, Sage, uh, do you see a Great Salt Lake Water Authority like the Utah Lake Authority they just made this last legislative session? Was that part of the deal at all? Uh, not that I know of, but I'm sure if it were to become a topic of discussion, can't wait to hear that debate play out. Well, there's so much power in who controls water, I can only imagine. And Rob, what do you think? And do you have any thoughts on the Utah Lake Authority by extension? Oh, I, I don't, I'm not going to go there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm just not going to share them. No, I don't see anything like that happen with Great Salt Lake. Okay. All right. So uh, I think that our panel here today is uh, positive or feels positive about where things are going with HB 33 and HB 410. We'll put links to the show notes for you to check out those bills, as well as Friends of Great Salt Lake. Rob, thank you so much for joining us remotely. Thanks for having me. And also, Sage Miller, Salt Lake Tribune, sltrib.com. We'll put a link to the story. What are you working on next? I oh, appreciate it. Uh, right now, I'm just working on a, a story about school resource officers and if they are, in fact, working 
um, or if there's ways we can find some solutions to kind of iron out the inequalities that uh, portray when school resource officers are implemented in schools. So. And you also got a tip through the show tonight about Save Parley's. Oh, and it yeah. 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 I guess like, I'll, I'll, I'll have to talk to Brian Mathley about what we can do about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And again, we'll put a link in tonight's show notes to Sage's story. And I uh, also want to remind folks that this conversation is part of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative, which is a partnership of news, education, and media organizations that aims to inform readers about the Great Salt Lake. We're just getting started with that. We're going to have a year at least dedicated to focusing on the news, the issues, the concerns, and the solutions around the Great Salt Lake. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Professor Amos Giora about the war in Ukraine. Here's Drive-By Truckers Surrender Under Protest on KRCL. KRCL's annual record and CD sale will be making its triumphant return in 2022. We're planning something special, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, we'll be taking donations of your gently used, tremendously loved, but slightly neglected records and CDs. If you can let go, we can make sure those treasures get their way to the next music lover in line. Donations are tax deductible and will help power your community radio station, 90.9 FM, KRCL. If you'd like to donate, reach out to me, Eric P. Nelson, at recordsale at krcl.org for details. See you soon. As many as 2 million people have been displaced in Ukraine. The Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help. Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. And you're listening to Radioactive on KRCL, listeners, Community Radio of Utah. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and crew. And after that, at 8, at, uh, eight o'clock, it's Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike, Gianni's Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Rich checks in with I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1. You get Illustrated Blues at 3. And then John Florence back to kick off your Friday edition of A Brand New Day. Our entire program rundown you can find online at krcl.org. And speaking of Ukraine, there is the Utah Ukrainian Association and all those efforts they're doing to support folks in that part of the world. And in fact, on the 21st, this Sunday, there is a concert at the Cathedral of the Madeline in a fundraiser. Got links for you at krcl.org, and you'll find them in the show notes tonight. But now I wanted to catch up with Professor Amos Giora, distinguished fellow for the Consortium for the Research and Study of Holocaust and the Law. He is also a professor at the S.J. Quinney College of Law, just back from spring break with his family in Jerusalem. And we wanted to figure out a little bit more about uh, Ukraine from his perspective. And you'll just bear with me as I find my clip that I accidentally ejected with that Drive-By Trucker song. So here's Professor Giora, our conversation from earlier today. Professor Giora, welcome back stateside after your spring break back home in Jerusalem. And I was just mindful as I was prepping for this, this conversation with you that it was May of last year when you were home and doing a Zoom interview and um, the Iron Dome went off, and perhaps you can relate more than most people I talk to on the show about what's going on to be uh, being shelled in your town. Yeah. Wow. Indeed, it was exactly, well, not exactly, it was, was it 10 months ago um, that 
the rocket, the first rockets came from Gaza. And we live about 10 minutes outside Jerusalem and 10 minutes from an Iron Dome installation. And uh, the first rockets for surprising were aimed in the general direction of Jerusalem, which is very unusual for Hamas. Um, and the first rocket rockets, single plural, landed as the crow flies a minute by as a crow flies by plane, right? Maybe a minute or two minutes from our house uh, at a uh, yoga studio not far from where we live. Um, but Iron Dome, which is that early warning system, is an extraordinary life changer, game changer, life saving, because it gives us, if I recall correctly, either somewhere between 45 to 90 seconds of warning to, to run to some kind of a shelter. Uh, and its introduction to Israeli society and their parents are uh, 15 or so years ago, 10, 15 years ago, um, makes living under the threat of missiles, I don't wanna say palatable because it's never palatable, but it makes it very doable. I think that'd be the right word. Because wherever you are and you hear the wee wheel, um, you can't miss it. Um, there's always enough time to get to run to shelter. Actually, you don't. And actually, the truth be told, you actually don't need to run to shelter because there are so many places in Israel you can, you know, walk to shelter. I mean, wouldn't walk slowly, but you don't have to run. There's, it minimizes panic, but it absolutely saves lives. Something like that would be helpful, but installing it at this point would be difficult, if not. Uh, I, I don't know that it could happen, but when I think of what President Zelensky of Ukraine said in his address to um, Congress yesterday, first, close the sky, but second, give us what we need to defend ourselves and protect our people. What's your take on where we stand right now, Professor? I keep thinking that we're at some kind of a crossroads, but I don't know what, where that crossroads is. I think it's clear, as clear as anything can be in the fog of war, that Putin didn't expect this thing to last so long. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's, a, first of all, shout out to the Ukrainians. Because I don't think that, as far as one can assess, that he did not expect them to put up this kind of an extraordinary fight. Two, I don't think that, as far as one can tell, that he realized that his army, the Red Army, is not what it was. Um, and it's very interesting, either yesterday or today, a fourth Russian general was killed in, a, in the Ukraine. And it's very unusual for generals to be killed. And there was an Israeli general analyst on TV when I was home, when it was last week, made a very interesting comment about the number of Russian generals who were being killed. His interpretation of it was that that reflects Putin's, put in your adjective, anxiety, displeasure with the conduct of the forces, which is why he's putting generals in the front lines. It's very unusual. The no-fly zone, you know, that's an interesting debate that, that obviously needs to be had. The role of the Chinese, obviously, is a role, is a question that needs to be had. 
what will happen if the if the Russian army keeps going west towards Poland? Does NATO then you know start to think about something or other? The extent to which the sanctions are effective? Um, will the oligarchs at some point turn on Putin? The role of the Israeli prime minister as mediator, which is extraordinary. But I think also that the role of the West, when push comes to shove, when push comes to shove, will it be um, some, there are three options, you know, diplomacy, sanctions, engagement, or will the West, as it's as has been its tradition, you know, more often than not, be this enabler and bystander, and that's a really, really, really important question that that um, needs to be asked. Well, given your experience, twenty years in the IDF, not to mention the legal aspects of war, terrorism, et cetera, that you you have, what is your reading of what kind of compromise could be had here? Because I don't see Ukraine saying, uh, uncle, to put it no. in complete layman's terms and capitulating no, 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 everything no. that I Russia asks. Well, you are right. And I see that one of the ideas that's being floated out there, because one has to be very discriminating and discerning in terms of what is truth, what's fiction, or what's a combination of truth and fiction. This idea of a disarmed Ukraine or a weapon maintaining um, Ukrainian sovereignty, but um, a military without a military. Um, we've been through this with the Palestinians, where it's been discussed. You know, a pal what's called a military, an army-less state, army-less state. We've we've been around the block with that with the Palestinians, and it's out there. I mean, there are such models. Um, I. I'm hard pressed to believe that Zelensky, who seems to be achieving Churchill-like status, is going to say, yeah, you know, we put up this great fight for three weeks. There are two million of us who are now refugees throughout the world. And yeah, now I'm going to agree to having no army. I just don't see that. Um, on the other hand, I don't see Putin saying, you know, really sorry about the past three weeks. Didn't work out. Uh, Let's U-turn and go home. I don't see that happening either. On the other hand, on the other hand, the Russians seem to be willing to be engaged in dialogue with the Ukrainians, whether directly, indirectly, um, mediated, not mediated, um, which to me reflects that Putin understands that this is not going the way he anticipated, because if it were going the way that he anticipated, or the way he was sold, right, or convinced um, that um, this is not what he expected. And I think that's the reason that you see the Russian um, negotiators um, engaged, in, engaged, engaging with um, the Ukrainians directly, indirectly. And also, I need to add, again, based on my experience, there are always the formal conversations that you see and there are always the back channel discussions. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say always. There are more often than not the back channels. So, Professor, 
When I'm looking at public sentiment, there seems to be quite a bit of support for Ukraine. Um, there is this conversation also about whether or not we are already in World War III. What do you think the public's appetite is for that sort of realization? If and whether or not you agree that we are there, well, no, I don't. I don't think we're. I don't think. I think that's an exaggeration. I think. I don't think we're in World War III. Is there an impact? Will there be impact economically? Gas lines, um, gas prices. That seems to be. Will the, does the public have a, a a stomach for this? I don't know. Does the public have a stomach for American soldiers coming home in in you know the famous line, "Have your boy come home in a box"? The great song by Country Joe the Fish, Woodstock, July nineteen sixty nine. I don't know if America, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, is is ready to going back to uh, Mr. McDonald's iconic song. Well, you're much too young for that, but Mr. McDonald, Mr. McDonald's iconic song, um, have your boy come home in a box, right? I don't think the, the my sense is that Ukraine and Russia are too are so far away and maybe removed. On the other hand, on the other hand, if westward ho in terms of you know towards Poland and then kicks in NATO's obligation, that then that becomes call it a, a foreseeable or reasonable possibility with the understanding that that nobody wants that but there is one other consideration that um i think is out there again one needs to be so careful with what what one hears and what is true um you know what happens if putin god forbid god forbid um nuclear i'm not even talking about nuclear weapon but you know chemical weapon of of whatever yeah, we're starting um, to say that's a red line. I've heard several politicians. I, but you know that whole red hours. line thing is so overplayed. Um, um, President Obama redlined the Assad in Syria, and then never did anything about it. We have to be really, really careful with red line. It's much too dramatic. The other thing that I think needs to be stated. So I understand politicking. I mean, I get the the, the cheap points. I understand that. Uh, I think it would behoove those who are just cheap politicking to um, sit in front of their TV and watch March Madness. I think that'd be a much more effective use of their time. We're talking with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He's also a distinguished fellow at the Consortium for the Research and Study of Holocaust and the Law at Chicago Kent College of Law, and of course, author and of course, author of *The Crime of Complicity: The Bystander in the Holocaust*. And I think that's where I kind of want to focus our lens. We seem to be watching quite a bit, and where and when and how much we step in. I mean, we see the news, we see the the theater. Is it in Mariupol that was bombed, even though it had? Right. The, the oh, words the children, the children oh, in Russian around it. And we have President Biden saying to a reporter that he does believe Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. I couldn't agree with the president more. So, um, so and, I, and my take on President Biden from a distance, right, is uh, in direct contrast to his predecessor, is very careful with his words, um, does, not does not engage in hyperbolic rhetoric. I don't think the president said that off the cuff because those are powerful words with significant ramifications. Um, I happen to agree with the president of the United States. And I also happen to agree with the president on his measured response and action to date. Uh, sure, there's criticism. Could he have done more? Could he have done more sooner? 
but I think that um, he, he seems to be very cautious. And I think that is the right approach, um, particularly in an era of, of social media and, and the viralness of information and um, misinformation, disinformation. I think also that Zelensky is proving himself, I know he was a stand-up comedian, he is proving himself to be a master of media in a way that 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 Putin is not in any way, maybe doesn't interest Putin. And I think that the so-called information war is proving itself to be perhaps more important than, than before. And Zelensky clearly has the upper hand. That doesn't guarantee victory, but it, it, I think it is important in the context of the court of public opinion. I mean, the world seems, with the exception, I just saw a report from the president of South Africa um, that he says that NATO is responsible for this. And as I um, just texted some friends of mine, I assumed that based on that comments, there must be some golden shower pictures of him um, somewhere in Moscow. Wow. Well, Putin, he needs his outcome in order to maintain his position. And what might be learned should he fall would be very interesting. That's, again, rank speculation. Sure. But it is an interesting question. Well, at some point, will the oligarchs say, this didn't work out really well, you know, let's find some other plan B. Um, because you listen, the oligarchs aren't big into having their assets um, taken from them. You know, Abramovich, who's the the Portuguese Israeli Jewish guy who has um, um, owned the, the Chelsea Football Club in, in England, um, has a this a plane that that he actually you know today you can track planes, right? Right. So we now know when he's in Israel because when you see his plane arriving in Israel, these guys can't be happy that that they're. Assets are being frozen, and their um, their toys are being taken from them. There's the I don't I don't know his name, the oligarch who has a yacht about the size of Israel off the coast of Norway that he, he can't get uh, gas for the thing. Well, these are not the kind of people who are used to um, having their toys taken from them. Um, and at some point, will they say, you know, it, it, that we had our toy taken from us because of, of Putin? You know, and what would be the consequence of that? Interesting. I mean, I, I don't think we any of us know that. Um, and Putin obviously is going to be a hard guy. I mean, if, if anybody's fantasizing about getting to Putin, um, you know, if anybody who's seen that, that the whole configuration of when he meets with people, the table, you know, the length of a football field. I mean, he's just this is complicated. This is seriously, seriously complicated. Well, so last we spoke, Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, had gone to Moscow for direct talks in the Kremlin. What's going on now? Uh, what According to the BBC yesterday, um, if there's any mediation taking place, it's, it's through Bennett. Remarkable. He seems to be the only one who has the ear, ears, ear of Putin, ear of Zelensky. I'm shaking my head because I think that for three reasons. One, if that solves this crisis, more power to Prime Minister Bennett. Two, it's wonderful as an Israeli who comes from the political center-left to see the uh, the world ignoring former Prime Minister Netanyahu, it puts a huge smile on my face, and his extraordinary irrelevance is something my my family and friends um, revel in. And three, what's it is important to add, and we could have a long conversation about this. It's actually been suggested to me that I should write about this. We have decided to to for now to let bygones be bygones about the Holocaust, because the Ukrainians were awful. Horrible. Yep, you mentioned that. We, we actually, we have an expression in Hebrew, um, which would roughly translate into English into 
I know what your grandfather did to my grandfather. I mean, that's the expression yeah. we use. Yeah. Uh, and we do know what, what their grandfathers did to our grandfathers. We know. We have decided to take in um, Gentile Ukrainians. And I think it's extraordinary when a society, it's unspoken. There's been criticism of the government. It's not like you, this is public discussion. It's not like we're all out there talking about this. It's, I don't know if it's book worthy, article worthy, discussion worthy, but it's extraordinary. And we don't forget, I mean, we're not going to forget, right? But we have decided, I think because of the pictures of the children, refugee children to, um, to move on. Well, and I'm not to move Zelensky, on. Zelensky brought up the never forget refrain. And he's also, what is he? He's around 40-ish or so. So as as the memory of the Holocaust recedes and we come around again to similar situations, I think you should write this article. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I actually was talking to a friend of mine about this on Monday and halfway through the conversation, he said to me, Giora, write the book. <laughs> like, okay, fine. <laughs> what do you think about the um, the situation of a WNBA star, Brittany Griner, who is being detained in Russia? And the, t- the detention was just extended, extended yeah, to, um, to May. And I, I just think these are these really odd kind of under the radar. I mean, it's getting some press, obviously, but a female... Um, gay, black, in Russia, being detained while this whole question is swirling? Um, we went through this a couple of years ago with an Israeli who, similar circumstances, drugs, in her suitcase at the airport. Um, and the negotiations are complicated, expensive, difficult. This is, um, I don't know anything about this woman. I know she's a basketball player. Um, she is, I would suggest, in very serious and significant trouble. This is an unforgiving regime, which is in no mood at the moment to negotiate any feel-good moment with the United States of America. Well, and if anyone represents perhaps Putin's disdain for the West, um, all the things that... uh, She's everything. You're right. She's everything he hates, in a sense. And has laws against. And so she's become a political pawn, definitely. I saw now that the Iranians released the other day some British woman who had been held. And and they released her, not out of the goodness of their heart, but because there was a significant financial compensation. I mean, very significant. These are very difficult negotiations that I don't think under any circumstance can happen now. But I don't know what she was doing in Russia. I mean, I know. She's playing ball. She's playing ball. Oh, she played for. Uh, well, you got to know when to get out. You got to know when to leave Dodge. Yeah. So, Professor, to, to wrap up our conversation, the average person um, doesn't have the legal expertise when it comes to the rules of war. But as the average person looking at it, I don't see the rules of war being followed over there. Correct. Um, and if the compromise is that you'll respect the sovereign territory of Ukraine, well, they've already violated agreements that we're supposed to respect it. And I think that's exactly why um, President Biden, after the bombing of the theater, that's what led him to define President Putin as a war criminal. I 100% agree with that. It raises very interesting questions. Um, will, will international organizations view the same way, you know, international judicial mechanism, National Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court. It's very interesting. We'll see. Well, and the Criminal Court in The Hague came out and said, 
illegal invasion cease. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this works itself out. Professor Amos Giora, S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, distinguished fellow at the Consortium for the Research and Study of Holocaust and the Law at Chicago Kent College of Law, and, of course, author of The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. Questions, comments, suggestions about Radioactive? Please send them to me, radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and I'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can also leave me a voicemail at 385-800-1889. You know, if you just have a song you'd like to hear and maybe use it as a takeoff point for a conversation, leave me a voicemail. Tell me why. Tomorrow night, it is Punk Rock Farmer Friday. Al Dines Trick 9 has got a great show for you, including the Zizus with some fresh and homegrown music. Got a bit of time here before Democracy Now! This is Amos Lee, Worry No More on KRCL. Thanks for listening. Have a great night, everybody.